This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm one of your hosts. We're not joined today by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler, who couldn't be here for this bit, but I am joined by Dr. Janice Whitlock. Dr. Whitlock is a research scientist emerita. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. I'm not in super in the academic world, so just checking. Uh, <laughs> in the Broffenbrenner Center for Translational Research at Cornell University and is the founder and director of the Cornell Research Program on Self-Injury and Recovery. Uh, she also is one of the authors of Healing Self-Injury, a Compassionate Guide for Parents and Other Loved Ones that we're going to talk about a bit today. And she was actually one of the very first guests on CXMH featured back on episode 12, uh, back in 2017. Dr. Whitlock, thank you for joining us again today. How are you doing? I'm good, and thank you for having me. It's delight, delightful to be here. Yeah, of course. What's been happening since 2017? I mean, any updates? I don't know how much of our audience, you know, has spanned that six-year gap, but uh, <laughs> I know, I'm sure, obviously, this book has come out since then uh, and, and a bunch of other stuff, but any highlights to, to mention in that time? Um, wow. Well, I think, gosh, a lot has happened since 2017, yeah. <laughs> but it's something we've all shared in. So I don't know that uh, anybody would be surprised by any of the updates in the self-injury world, which is that, you know, things have gotten, well, just like a lot of mental health trends, self-injury has increased a bit um, as we've hmm. weathered that time and mental health in general has become even more important than it ever was because so many people are struggling. But beyond that, yeah. for the program, you know, the book came out and there's been a number of other papers and there's a big Oxford volume. On, it's going to be the handbook for non-suicidal self-injury and it's going to be co-edited by myself and two of my colleagues. That's almost done. Uh, and that will be good. So, Yeah. I know you mentioned right there some trends and things. I do. I do want to, before we really get going, right, I know it's been... A super long time since we last talked. I guess six years feels like a lot, and maybe that feels <laughs> like uh, even longer, you know. Uh, but I do want to touch on some of the basics again, just in case people haven't, you know, been hanging on since episode twelve. But to start with, I think it's it's pretty important to define what we're talking about, right? So for for those who have heard terms like self harm, self injury, or even non suicidal self injury, which was the title of of the last episode you were on, right? Can you explain what we're talking about and kind of how how those terms work? Yeah, so non-suicidal self-injury is the deliberate and direct uh, infliction of uh, damage onto one's body without suicidal intent and uh, in ways that are not socially sanctioned. So, for example, we don't include tattooing or piercing, uh, even though if there's a lot of tattooing or piercing, it may very well serve some of the same function as self-injury. Hmm. What was the second part of the question? No, just uh, the differences between those terms, maybe, or I think you even touched on it. You said without suicidal intent, right? So maybe the uh -huh. the non-suicidal right. self-injury, that's kind of the distinction there, uh, even though I know some of the maybe common 
understanding uh, if you're not a mental health professional might be like, oh, these things are pretty closely linked or maybe it's, you know, related heavily with suicidal ideation or actions. But we're talking about there's some distinction there. Yeah, definitely a distinction. So, you know, it, it does look and feel the same if you're looking out from the outside. But the thing that distinguishes not suicidal self-injury from suicidal intent, self-directed injury is intention. And generally, it's quite clear at this point that people who use non-suicidal self-injury are quite clear that it's not suicidal. And in fact, paradoxically, it's often used to to feel better. So to come back into a state of calm if one is in a state of agitation or to come into a state of integration if one is feeling very detached from oneself. So in that way, because of that, the distinction is really quite important, I think. Yeah. And we're talking about, you know, not to get too uh, descriptive or or anything like that, maybe, but we're talking about, you know, commonly understood things such as uh, cutting oneself or hair pulling things, you know, in, in that realm. Yeah. So the kinds of functions or the forms, sorry, that people use can really vary. The most common types are, say, cutting, for example. That's what I think most of us are used to seeing in media hearing about. So somebody might take a blade or a knife and damage the skin of their body in some way. Um, but there's also scratching. Like people, one of that's a really common method. People can use their fingernails to do a lot of the same thing, or using, you know, burning or um, embedding objects under the skin is another one. Punching, punching objects, or sorry, punching oneself or punching the wall or some other kind of object, but with the intention of hurting yourself is another form that often looks like outward directed aggression. And maybe it is often, but it has an internally focused component that's less visible. So there's a bunch of mm. things that people use. Yeah, yeah. So one of my next questions, right, would be kind of how common is self-injury? And I know right there you mentioned during the pandemic, right, some shifts, things like that. So uh, can you talk a little bit about maybe uh, how how common different rates or anything? And I would particularly curious I know we mostly talk about self-injury at least I think commonly related to teenagers right but are there is it also prevalent in uh, other age ranges things like that (laughs) well I mean self-injury is most common in the adolescent young adult group so um, but you do see it you do see it younger I mean there's a number of studies now in elementary school children because it's becoming um, sadly more common there we also do see it in uh, adults and even in older adults. It's much less common than you'd expect. So, for example, this, the adult rate of self-injury has held at about 5.5% for a really long time. And I don't know if that has changed over the pandemic, to be honest. I haven't seen studies on, yeah. on adults per se. Most of, this, most of the studies were focused on adolescents and young adults, where we have seen increases over time. So, for example, in a really nice, you've seen a really large representative data set of college students, we see rates of, like, starting in, it's like if you start at 20, 2013, um, their rates were around 17% or so. But as we got into 21 and uh, the, the pandemic, uh, well, things were going up all over that time, but it in 2021, mm. the rates were 23.5%. So it was an increase but, of 45% over a fairly narrow window of time, 2013 yeah. to 21. 
So that, that's pretty significant. And we've seen some similar stuff in adolescence to the best of our ability to assess it, um, where I, you know, I'd guess that 25 to 27% of secondary school students, for example, in that age range has ever self-injured. Yeah. So you said something interesting when we were talking about kind of the distinction between maybe suicidal actions or behaviors, right? And you said, uh, paradoxically, maybe non-suicidal self-injury used as a, a way of feeling better or as a kind of an uh, an effective coping skill, for lack of a better term there, right? Uh-huh. And I think it's it's one of the, the topics that seems to me at least to be maybe met most harshly with judgment or, or confusion. And one of the reasons I love your work, right? I mean, I took a a webinar by you years ago, which is how I ended up inviting you on the first time, and then now this book. But you focus on the the compassion and the understanding, right? So, could you help our yeah. listeners understand when you say, you know, paradoxically, maybe it's something that that is helpful or is useful? Why might why might that be, right? Like, what's happening there? Um, well, yeah, it is. I think it's super important. And when I'm working with professionals and parents, I really try to to. Uh, help them understand and be able to focus on this component because while you might be able to say or argue persuasively that suicide is an extreme end to wanting to feel better you know you want to feel better by not being here at all um that's obviously not it's a hard thing to work with that feeling of not wanting to be here but with non-suicidal self-injury the person is quite clear that they want to be here they want to be present they want to participate in their life they're just feeling an overwhelming amount of either agitation or anxiety or some sort of feeling that they don't want. Or conversely, sometimes they just feel extraordinarily numb. We call that detachment. I mean, most of us have the experience once in a while of feeling emotionally numb, but it can feel, yeah. uh, y- when you're dissociated, it can feel really scarily numb. So sometimes people will use self-injury to feel real again and whole again. But in both of those instances, um, the goal of self-injury is to feel better. And I always try to tell people, you can work with that impulse. That's a healthy impulse. The pathway to feeling better, maybe, you know, not so much, but but the impulse itself is a, is a functional, healthy impulse. So if we can really train our gaze on that and try to help people, you know, honor that part and say, how about, let's try to figure out another way for you to achieve that goal without hurting your body in ways that may be long lasting, then that's always ideal. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really helpful because it, it shifts maybe from a like the goal is stop doing that, right? Like right. The, 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 if we can shift that to the goal is, okay, I, I understand that you're feeling overwhelmed or any of those other things. And when I'm overwhelmed, I do things that make me feel better, right? Like I do things that help me right. to, to calm down or whatever, right? Like, and so maybe maybe this one seems a little less safe and so we would prefer to steer in a different direction, but that's a very different way of approaching it, right? How else can we help you to to navigate, you know, to regulate then that's a very different approach than like, stop doing that. That's so scary. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the reasons why compassion ended up as a word in the title, because you really have to have compassion for everybody, right? Like I cannot yeah. as a parent... Uh, as a professional, somebody who's been on the planet who loves people and loves young people, I cannot help but have compassion for the, especially the parent who looks at their child and they've got wounds on them and you just want them to, you just want to stop, you know, just stop, please don't damage this yeah. body I helped to make. I love this body. Don't do that. Please don't hurt it. I, I totally get the response. That's why the compassion there is important. But 
once yeah. once you know a parent can or the professional or whoever's working kind of move through their own human reaction to that and people do tend to have strong reactions to just viscerally that it's often reflexive to, to other people damaging them themselves it's really it it, it uh, is antithetical to a lot of our deep instincts for survival so so people will find anger coming up quickly mm. often even even they don't even know where it's come from so there is yeah. usually some process of kind of moving through that set of emotions that you're having and then if you can help the person who's who's using self-injury as a way of feeling better to to find other ways that'll work that's good that ends up being not always easy for a number of reasons it's not as much it's mm. not like oh honey i see you know let's let's work together <laughs> to do this right. thing to have you you know, like it's a great start but then you're probably going to encounter some resistance and a number of other at time you're going to have to be patient and there's there's a lot of other things that go into that but holding the yeah. state of compassion for everybody in the system does seem to be the most productive stance yeah yeah, and, and chapter nine of, of Healing Self-Injury is actually called I Have Feelings Too, right? And it talks about, you know, if you're a parent or another loved one, right, or, or someone that's, you know, working with your own things and, and having space for those as well, again, in a compassionate stance of like, ah, it makes sense that this is scary for me, you know, if I'm watching my child or, or you know, other young person or whoever that I'm, you know, as you were describing, right? And so I think that compassion going kind of, you know, all around abounding to, to everyone involved, I think makes sense. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. So, so this book, right, is directed at, at parents and other loved ones. If, if I'm a, a parent, a teacher, a youth pastor, you know, whoever else, right, and I notice what mm -hmm. I think might be some signs of self-harm beyond, okay, taking deep breaths to make sure that I'm not, you know, freaking out in giant air quotes there, right? Yeah. But what are the first few mm -hmm. steps maybe that I should take in, okay, well, how do I even bring this up? How do I, you know, figure out what's happening? What What would you say? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. So first, yeah, you've done your, your deep breathing. You know that you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I think the right stance, inner, the right inner stance is one of care. I know people, for a lot of people, it's like, of course, but the reality is that sometimes what happens is it becomes about control, um, and and that is not terribly mm. helpful. But but the first right stance is like, okay, what you want to be conveying to this person, even if you get frustrated because they either deny it or they don't share very much or they you know whatever it is that comes back at you when you so helpfully try to to be helpful. Um, you want to convey, I care about you and I'm here for you and this isn't too much for me. So a lot of people who self-injure end up feeling like they don't, you know, what they do is odd or strange and kind of gory and they don't want to, you know, other people are going to be kind of freaked out by it. And they're kind of right in some ways because that's true. Some people are really freaked out, hmm. by it, especially people who love you and don't like seeing wounds on your body. So being able to say either directly or implicitly, I care about you and this is not too much for me and we're going to work on this together um, and I'm not without being invasive is those are the sort of the, the meta messages you're wanting to get through. How that comes out your mouth could be that, it could be really direct, um, but often it's not that. Often it's you have to start with like, I've noticed, Sarah, I've noticed some marks on your skin that look like cuts and uh, 
you know, just whatever, saying whatever you observed. And I wonder, and I know that people use, sometimes do that to help themselves feel better. Is that true for you? Hmm. So, so you can, it's what we call respect, respectable curiosity. So you can, yeah. you go with core respect for somebody's personhood. You say, use I statements to see what, to say what you've observed or why it is that you're approaching them. You don't accuse or make assumptions. Even if you see wounds all over their body, I would not say, right. <laughs> you know, I, it's clear you're self-injuring. I wouldn't necessarily do that. I would say it looks like you have yeah. a lot of scarring and I'm wondering if if this is what's happening for you. So you make, you know, yeah. it's like you're the expert of you. I'm in, I'm inviting you to tell me about you and I, I want to know about you. So I, that's why it's just yeah. like a real soft, respectfully curious approach, being direct and honest and relying on I statements. Those are often the best. You may get back, no, I'm not doing anything. You know, why would you think such a thing or whatever? You may get something defensive back. And that's often the hardest part um, because then you have to sort of sit with the frustration. Uh, and you, the goal then is just to keep the door open. You're not there to yeah. force them to confess to you what's going on. And you just say, okay, I understand that you may not want to talk right now. I really want you to know that I, I'm here for you. And if you're a parent, I would say, and I, I will probably come back to you and we'll talk again at another time or something. You just... Uh, yeah. And keep that door open. Yeah, I, I love the the invitation, right? And the the acknowledgement that you're the expert of you. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not saying here's what's happening with you. But then I also wanted to highlight, you said sometimes when, you know, sometimes people use things like that to, to help them feel better. And my mind instantly went to, we've had a number of, of conversations on the show about suicide prevention and, and I do uh, suicide prevention trainings even and in and as part of that right i often say you know if you can say something potentially like sometimes when people are are in as much pain as you they might think about you know might have some suicidal thoughts because baked into the statement is that this wouldn't be abnormal for you to be experiencing right and so i think you did a really exactly. similar thing right there right of like hey i'm telling you within my question that this is a thing that happens and like that this isn't like, you know, you are the only one, this would be so weird, Correct. how dare, you know, but it's like baked into there. And so, I don't know, I love that that, you know, kind of was just organically part of part of your, your answer. Oh, good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think that is really true. It's, it's a really nice, nice approach because people do often feel really isolated and, and, and weird. That would be the word that a lot of people used. I'm not sure that for self-injury hmm. that is as true as it was when I first started studying this in the early 2000s uh, sure. because there is you know it just figures so much more prominently now and i think people kind of know that it's something people do but they may not know anybody in their world who does and they may feel like it's really unusual for people that are around them and nobody they knew if they know or who would love them might even begin to think that something like that was a thing so you're also saying i i've heard about this i get it it's not too much for me. That's really helpful. Right. Yeah. So say, you know, in your in your theoretical, you know, here, right, okay, Sarah, here's my question, and they say no, you know, and you say, okay, well, I'll, I'll come back, or I'm always here, right? How do you balance the, the felt sense of urgency, right? Because I can imagine as a, a parent or a teacher or whoever, right, going, okay, I, I totally get that I want them to feel like they can choose when to come back to, and talk to me. 
how do I balance yeah. that with safety, right? If I go, okay, but also I'm mm-hmm. concerned about, you know, the safety here. And I think knowing that it's a different, maybe serves a different function than suicidal behaviors maybe is helpful in that, knowing that, okay, this isn't, you know, the same thing. I think that's helpful a little bit in in maybe reducing some small percentage of that urgency. But how do we balance, you know, the the maybe felt sense of urgency around safety with but also I want to give you the the autonomy to come back and talk to me so that you feel safe with that. Yeah, um so that's a really good question. And it, it it's as much an art as it is anything else and you you know your instinctive knowing about your kid, your child. I mean, um so Yeah, I I know that probably varies, yeah. you know, but I can just imagine yeah. if I'm listening to this as a parent, I go I mean, sure, in theory, but, you know. Yeah, but right. Yeah, but my child is cutting themselves up and they're bleeding, <laughs> they're leaving blood places and I'm worried about that. Right. So that's where, you know, you, you know how to approach your child. I think the res- respectfully curious stance is the stance to take. And then and then beyond that, if you have communications like, uh, like this needs to be dealt with sooner rather than later, then, then it's just a matter of leaning really heavily on your I statements as well as the care that you have. So you may say, I've noticed that, you know, you have a a wound that looks really deep and I'm very concerned about that. And we can talk about why, how it came to be, but let's, we need to first attend to safety and make sure that it's clean or, you know, that we go Mm. to the doctor. Because a lot of times people will injure themselves more severely than they intended, but they don't go get stitched up or whatever. And that can cause terrible scarring, right? So there is this like, okay, if it's on the surface and you need to attend to safety, then that's the first thing you do. Um, yeah. If you're noticing that your child has has like, you know, some surface, because most often it's like surface wounds uh, and they're, uh, so I, if it were me, I would probably say my child would say, you know, I don't want to talk about it or whatever right now. And I would say, okay, but I'm going to want to talk about this with you at some point before too long because... I mean, I want to make sure you get the support you need. I know you may need a little time to to think, prepare to talk to me. <laughs> right. And you can right. have that. But I need to I need to know right now if you're if you're if you've you've been feeling suicidal or like you right. might want to end your life. Because that's actually that's the biggest concern at the moment. If the answer right. is no and you it's really clear to you, then you have time. Like most Probably in all likelihood, your child has already been self-injuring off and on for a while. It's really rare that a ch- that a parent would know at the very beginning, very sure. very beginning. So, so you know, I know it feels urgent to a to a parent because what happens in their mind is like oh, my child could die. That's just some often right. what's going on in the background, but that's really unlikely um, from your standard self-injury to feel better technique. Sure, yeah. So. I, I might just, I'd be like, okay, let's consider this a he- you know, a heads up in a way. And I want to circle back around to have a conversation here before long. Yeah. And then just, cause then you've already done several things. You've given a child notice that you've noticed and you said, I really want to talk about it. And then I would make good on that. I would, you know, in, in a day or two or whenever, or three or within a week, then when it feels comfortable, let's say, can we talk about that now? Yeah. Uh, and then I might have some questions just a few like you don't want to throw a bazillion questions at your child at once unless the conversation starts to flow naturally and then of course right if i were the parent i would say you get your 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 top questions on the top 
the, the top two or three because you may not get any more than that in the first couple of conversations. And for me, those would be, um, oh boy, it's a really good question. Well, there's so there's a lot of different candidates, <laughs> but I think one of the one of the top candidates is you know we I'd really like you to have some therapeutic and professional support. Right. Can we talk about that? Um, that seems to, to for me that'd be pretty top. Uh, and then there would also be, you know, I, I think a lot of kids say they want to they want to be able to tell their their parents why. Not every kid says that, but there I've heard that a lot in interviews that they want to be able to share why. Mm-hmm. So um, I might I might ask, do you, do you want to talk to me about what's going on for you, what's happening for you? Yeah. Um, and maybe not make it about the self-injury. Don't, you know, don't, t- why are you cutting yourself up? I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I would say, it right. looks like you're, you're suffering. It looks like there's, there's, yeah, there's, you don't feel good. And I want to know about that. The self-injury yeah. is a symptom of that. And so that's where I would help parents to put their gaze. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. The shifting past this, you know, the the self-injury as the most important thing, right? Because it's not, it's a response yeah. to whatever else is, is happening. And even if we said, okay, you stopped doing that, poof, right? Well, I still want to know what else is happening. I still want, you know, the, the, there's going to be other things, you know, and so uh, creating space for that and letting them, letting them talk. And I think it makes, I love that you said, you know, I would, I would think about my, you know, top two or three. And I love the the idea of it being a process, right? I mean, I think sometimes we think, oh, I finally bring it up and there'll be a big, long conversation where I fully understand all of it and then we'll go to therapy and, you know, knock it out. But knowing that that conversations are ongoing, it's a process, right? Like, oh, I understand a little bit right. and you're, you opened up a little bit and then wanted to go to bed. So then maybe the next time we talked, right, or whatever it is, just knowing that right, that have- takes time and, and patience, I think is... Is probably pretty helpful. Yeah, and you're. I mean, one of the things I'd really love for parents to understand is, um, you know, for so many parents, it just, it's just, it's um, just so traumatizing. And one of the places their mind tends to go to is, my child will never be okay, um, or now we're just sort of in survival mode, right? I would say that it's fascinating, but and very true that in a good chunk of the cases that we worked with, parents and their young people grow as a result of all the stuff that happens through this, be- partly mm. because, especially if the family is sort of trying their best to deal with it in healthy ways and, you know, they need to, there needs to be lots of compassion because stuff happens and things are said and it's okay. Um, but if they're really doing their best to, to meet the challenges that they're confronted with in a healthy way, then often what happens is there's growth in the family around the ability to communicate, their ability to be just honest. To, and, you know, sometimes there's things that just need to be said that have never been said. And they get said during this time or they get shown. And just bringing the, the a, a, one of the family members' pain up and having it be held by everybody in a way, even if it's a little bit clunky and awkward at first, can really add dimension to a family that is actually in the long run quite lovely yeah so say we've done a little bit of that right i've had some conversations and then towards the end of the book you talk about 
collaboration, right? Important people to, to, to build collaboration with. And you mentioned it kind of in, in those top questions, right? One about, okay, I'd like you to get some therapeutic, you know, some, some support here. How, I mean, one, if we can get past the kind of, uh, we should keep this between us, you know, sense of things, maybe, maybe that's stigma Rahma. or fear or whatever, right? How, right. Why is collaboration so important? And then what, what can that look like, right? How can I find and establish helpful collaborations as opposed to, okay, I, you know, went and talked to everybody I know about this and people, you know, did all sorts of different things. Like, how do I, how do I, how would I navigate that? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And it, you know, hopefully they'll all be fruitful collaborations, but sometimes you just don't know. <laughs> right. Um, right. So one of the important things about collaborations is it's kind of a, a web of care for your, for your child and your family. And that's always good, right? So yeah. that's good. However, it, it, you want to be mindful about who's invited into the web of care for a couple of reasons. One is that your child is probably not going to be psyched to have everybody you all know, <laughs> knowing right. that things that are vulnerable to them. So that's another place where respect respect becomes really important. You know who? Fine. And I would, if it were me, I would I would say to my child, like, I um. I won't talk about this with, you know, all our family members or, but I'm going to need a couple of people in my life to talk about it too. So I just want to let you know, and I'm mm. thinking so-and-so-and-so-and-so. Um, so get, so getting their the, input so, even on like who those people might be. Or just letting them know, because what can happen is that a kid wanders around wondering who knows, and it just ends up feeling really, it's stigmatizing and it may yeah. actually cause suffering in the family like it may make them less likely to share because yeah. they don't want everybody in the family knowing their business um and that can be true even with siblings and stuff i think parents probably uh, need to not agree to not tell another parent that's un unless there's sure. real legitimate concerns about another parent's response right 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 um but that would be i hope a conversation that the parent who's in the know would have with their child and you know, very yeah. would know, but but it, beyond that, then I think it's we're just helpful for the child to know, and it also conveys, you know, I respect you as a person, and I'm not going to go sharing all your business. But it's also it's really not about you, honey. I also need some support. Yeah. So here, here's who I will kind of talk talk to, but I promise, you know, I won't share a lot of your business. It'll really mostly be about support for me. Hmm. Um, yeah. And if and again, you know, sometimes it depends on the, ch the child themselves and their age and all sorts of other stuff. So I wouldn't make that a mandate for parents, but consider it. Consider letting your child know. At the very least, you might want to let your child know that their the whole family isn't going to know their business, <laughs> even if you don't sure. want to talk to them about who you might talk to. Yeah, and that will yeah. enhance. And the other reason for that is it enhances the sense of safety and um, you know signals you're a good confidant. Yeah. And I know yeah. having had, you know, my adult, my children are now young adults, but certainly we went through the teen years. It was very important to them that when they told me something, it stayed with me. I heard about yeah. that a lot, believe me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I know right. how important that, that is to them, uh, even in ways that sometimes sort of surprised me or about things that surprised me. So I know this would be yeah. one of the, the big things. Yeah. And then in terms of maybe uh, finding a, a therapist or treatment or something, right? Yes. I mean, are there, that can be such a, well, an overwhelming process, right? Do I just Google therapist for self-harm, right? Like, do you have any <laughs> helpful tips? Right. Yeah. So we were again talking about collaboration. So, and then we'll go to therapy. Um, 
so yeah, and then it's like, well, who who needs to kind of know and be a part of this this care system? So, yeah. um, you know, like a child's best friend is is likely to know, and it's not like the parent and the best friend should they shouldn't get together and talk about the child that shouldn't wouldn't be good, but sure. but they can consider the parent can consider that person part of the support network. Hmm. Um, and uh, I and I would because close friends often know the most about their child about your, right. your child i mean that is really right. the, they really are the front line they may not be very well positioned to help a whole lot just so they don't have much experience but they do they will be holders of a lot of knowledge um and so yeah so i remember for, there was a period where my daughter was really struggling and my son and my daughter were pretty close and i'm just like can you i don't need to know details but can we agree that you, my dear son, will let me know if you're worried about your sister, if I should mm. really worry about your sister. Uh, yeah. Because he was eyes and ears that I just couldn't be in the same way. Oh, that's and, such a good know, that, way of phrasing it too, right? It's not give me a, a report of everything, but if you're worried, I need to know that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, possibly school, it, depending on who, you know, how out it is or who it know who it, who at school knows you may sometimes people find out through school because child is self-injuring and then they get you know school becomes aware and then the parents become aware there's probably going to be a person there that'll be somebody that you can connect to but i think that's a that's an important link the the, the school home link if the school's aware if the school's not aware i would not go out of my way to make them aware because hmm. um it may or may not intersect with what's happening at the school level and it may make things more complicated for the child so that again that's kind of you know your child you know how where what this is and you know the schools the school the school system but often that is a helpful link between a parent and um somebody at the school who can kind of keep an eye out for the young person's just their basic you know do they seem okay or if they're are they showing up at school and they're despondent all the time and they're not engaging with friends and that kind of stuff. That becomes part of the picture, the big picture of how is this person? Are they doing okay? Yeah. Are they sustaining or are they headed towards, say, suicide or something like that? That would be super, super scary. Right. Yeah. And then, and then yes, of course, a professional is really a, a useful part of the collaboration. And, and it's a little tricky because um, it's also got to be there has to be good therapeutic alliance or hmm. the chances are very high that somebody who self-injures will not stay in therapy and if it's a bad therapeutic alliance like if they were having a really they didn't they had a bad time and that they felt invaded or pushed or whatever it just didn't work then they may resist going back for a really long time yeah so it's worth taking time and really in involving the other person wherever possible if you have choices i mean it's hard therapy climate right now right everybody's so booked up and it's hard to get mm -hmm. in yeah, yeah. is it in so it's not like parents be choosy choppers shoppers all the time so yeah if in that case i would look for you know people who have experience with adolescents or young adults and dbt because that is the most common it's dialectical behavior therapy it's the most common modality used. That's probably where they would start, depending on the complexity of the case. Yeah, I think those are good. Th are good uh, 
starting points, right? At least to say, okay, I'm looking for these types of things. And if that's really impossible, then, you know, but I think at least knowing a couple of things to, to look for, as opposed to just scrolling around online, um, is yeah. definitely helpful. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I know, uh, all of that is, is good. And, and most of that has been, uh, geared towards people who are trying to help somebody else. Right. But I am curious if there's somebody listening who says, okay, you know, I find myself using self-injury oftentimes and, and as a, as a coping skill, and I would want to stop maybe, right? Like I, I know that's not what I would prefer. What would you, what would you say to them? Hmm. Um, I mean, really, truly the, the, the most important ingredient of wanting to, of stopping is wanting to stop. And I often hmm. will tell people it's kind of useful if you're, especially if you're a clinician working with somebody who self-injures to, to assess on a scale of one to 10, how, how much do you want to stop? If they're below a five, whereas 10 is like absolutely today is when I want to stop But now. Sure. Um, if they're below five, chances are good that they're probably not going to stop very soon. And you're really going to be looking at s- sort of slowly addressing some of the underlying issues and then building some of the coping scaffolding that will support hmm. them. Because the thing is, is that self-injury really, if for the people it works for, it works really well. And they often resist using much else because self-injury can be so fast about, you know, neurologically, the way it works is just yeah. fast. So it's hard to replace with something that feels satisfying. And typically what's happening is somebody has to learn how to withstand discomfort for a longer emotional discomfort for a longer period of time than they would normally. Uh, And then they need to be able to engage other techniques for down, we call down regulating, basically calming down uh, or coming back into equilibrium. And that can take time to learn. Yeah. and to even prefer part of the resistance to self-injury is like, oh, you just need more coping techniques. It's like, no, this is actually the one I really prefer. Right. So if, if it's you, then it's like, know thyself. This is really important. How willing and ready and able are you really on your scale of one to 10? If you're up there, six, seven, eight, then it's just a matter of um, coming up with the structures that are going to support that. And mm-hmm. And again, it's like knowing yourself and knowing your life and what your triggers are. And when you're able to resist self-injury, even though you might have defaulted to that, how are you able to resist it? How do you be fat up? How do you do more of that? Um, and getting help, it really, really does help. And help can be certainly a therapist, but it doesn't have to always be that. Like there's um, these great support groups, Sierra, self-injury recovery anonymous maybe um anybody's Hmm. interested they can reach out to me or maybe just just uh, actually i think we have a link on my website Um, yeah i'll toss it in the show yeah i'll go go grab it afterwards yeah and i they might have they might have actually um rebranded a little bit but they're cool it's a it's like a an anonymous like a aa but for self-injury and the groups get together and they 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 just sort of do group work together and a lot of it is moderated and it's it's cool. It's a it's a nice option for people who don't want to do therapy yeah. or who just can't for whatever reason. Or sometimes it's just having people in your life who are like, okay, you'll be, can when I get really triggered in this particular way, can I just reach out to you for some support while I weather 
the urge because the urge is weatherable. Like it usually is pretty acute for maybe 20 minutes, but it'll start to ease off if you can just live through that. Mm. So breathe, walk. I Hands down, the thing that comes up over and over is like when people are starting to move into that process of ending, if they can just get out of the space, like the physical space yeah. that they're in when when their headspace turns south and they get true, you know, they have the urge, it really helps. So just get yeah. out of the room, go for a walk, get out into nature. If you can live through that 20 minute, chances are good that it's gonna, you won't, it won't be as acute. Yeah. And yeah. maybe even less for some people. So there are like techniques, but a lot of it really depends on your desire, truly, authentically, right. and um, how well you can sort of structure your life around what you know about yourself and your triggers. Yeah, yeah. And again, again, all of that wasn't, you know, how do I just stop this thing? Like just eliminate this one behavior, right? It was, okay, there's other stuff happening. What else, what other techniques do we have? What other tools do we use? How do we, you know, address a lot of the other things? It, it again was this more kind of compassionate understanding like holistic look not just well just don't do this thing right yeah well gosh and you know i just say that especially for things that are repetitive and habitual or addictive forget will will is only you know it might get you through a few days <laughs> but <laughs> yeah will will inevitably fail we are our will is much less powerful than we think it is yeah. when in the face of uh kind of repeated urges so, you yeah. know, yeah, that's just, that's somebody who says that's what I'm going to do. And then I think, okay, you just don't know yourself very well. And you probably don't know this, this <laughs> process very well. And so that will come first and then we'll be yeah. working on yeah. the other stuff. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's similar to any other, you know, sustained change that we're trying to make, especially uh, in terms of something, you know, that maybe we turn to when we're not feeling great. Right. I mean, when people say, oh, I'm going to eat better what I'm going to change, I'm just going to, I'll just try harder. Right. And I always go, well, what does that, what right. does that mean? I don't like, I have no concept <laughs> okay. of what just try harder. Like, you know, why don't, why don't we work on some context and change, you know, like, or whatever the thing is that, that they're working with. Um, okay. Well, I know you have lots more resources um, and, and whatnot for individuals, but also for, you know, parents or teachers or basically anybody, right on uh, the self-injury and recovery resources page. That's selfinjury.bctr.cornell.edu. Um, is that the website you were referencing? Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. Yep. And then people can also uh, buy this book, Healing Self-Injury, A Compassionate Guide for Parents and Other Loved Ones. Wherever you buy your books, we'll have links to both of those and, and everything else in the show notes. Listeners, you can also connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. You can connect with Holly at hollyoxhandler.com or any social media at hollyoxhandler. Dr. Whitlock, thank you so, so much for joining us again today. Uh, any closing thoughts for our listeners? Thank you for the invitation to join you. And closing thoughts would be just, especially if you're a parent or, or you know, somebody who's really in the beginning stages of somebody, don't give up and don't think the worst. It can be okay. It probably will be okay. The key ingredient in healing, aside from the wanting to recover, is love and care from other people. Even if someone can't feel it all the time, it really does make an enormous difference. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. 
Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at cxmhpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.